0: Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Demystifying Media podcast. In this episode, Alan Abbey, Director of Internet and Media at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem, is interviewed by two University of Oregon students, Levi Gittleman and Morgan Krakow, who are both from the UNESCO Crossings Institute, which launched at the University of Oregon in 2013. The institute promotes conflict-sensitive reporting and intercultural dialogue, and is designed to broaden students' awareness of these issues. In that spirit, Alan Abbey's talk from November 2017 on Israeli media and threats to Israeli press freedoms seems like a great opportunity for me to step out of the way and let the students take over.
1: So with that in mind, on with the show. I'm Levy Gittleman.
2: And I'm Morgan Krakow.
1: And we're here with Alan Abbey to ask him some questions about his trip to Oregon for the first time since, what was it? 1978. Great. So could you briefly tell us a little bit about your talk yesterday?
0: Sure. I gave a lecture to J-100 about uh, Israeli media, and I started actually in the 1890s because I wanted to give the context and background of how today's media in Israel developed, which is very different from the media in the United States. And I gave some history of the pre-state Israel uh, in Palestine in the early 20th century and tried to get up to today. I think I spent more time on the past than the present, but next time I'll... uh, take it from there, I suppose.
2: Nice, why do you think that context was important for the students you're talking to?
0: So that's a, that's a good question. The uh, Israeli media are different from American media. Uh, obviously, we, they put out newspapers daily and there are news websites and radio stations and TV stations, and on the surface, they all look pretty much the same to the way uh, American media look. Um, The TV networks have reality shows and uh, cop shows and sitcoms. But the context of Israeli media is very different. There's no First Amendment in Israel. There's no tradition of, really, of uh, completely free speech. And uh, even to this day, there are some laws on the books, although they're not always enforced, that permit and require censorship in ways, I think, that are unknown or unimaginable in the United States.
2: What do you think American journalists could learn from Israeli journalists?
0: Oh, that's a really good question, too. I think American journalists could learn speed. I don't think they can learn accuracy. Unfortunately, Israeli media are not as rigorous in their fact-checking as Americans. But I will say that when there's news from outside Israel, I often get it first on Israeli media before I see it on even the New York Times or the BBC websites. The Israeli media are attuned to really fast turnaround of information. Now, that sometimes leads to sloppiness and errors, uh, but that's probably the greatest strength of Israeli media. Plus, they're quite dogged about following a story, following an individual, almost to the point of harassment, unfortunately, but there are few stories that stay hidden in Israel, and the media are really dogged about getting at those stories. And the final thing I guess they could learn is is competitiveness Israeli media are intensely competitive. Um, sometimes, again, that goes to excess, but I think competition is very important and
1: uh, in media. Yesterday, you talked about that astronaut who went like when he came back, and it was this huge ordeal that the story hadn't come out at time. and And then you say that there there's a quick turnaround in news media. So that shift at that certain point, when you realize that. On Shabbat, there was no news coming out? Was there a shift there?
0: Yeah, I told that story on myself. It's probably a dark moment in my own personal journalism career. In fact, if you know of the magazine Columbia Journalism Review, they had a column called Darts and Laurels, where laurels are, they would note good journalistic uh, events or stories over the past few months, and darts were the ones where the media may uh, screwed up. And I I have to say the only time I ever made it into Columbia Journalism Review was as a dart because our website, the Jerusalem Post website, did not have any news about the crash of the space shuttle that included an Israeli astronaut for several hours. So we certainly learned a lesson about that, that even though the Jewish Sabbath is the day of rest in Israel on Saturday, that uh, news media needed to be on top of stories 24-7 And um, I don't know if I would trace all of the Israeli uh, media's instantaneous journalism to that event, but I think it was one of those game changers in the current era of internet journalism that, that proved that you have to be on all the time.
1: All right. So more about being Jewish and being a journalist. I saw that you wrote an article called Jewish Media Journalists Prefer Their Own Judgment to Ethical Codes, and I thought that was really interesting and how the Jewish religion can provide ethical codes to journalists?
0: You've done your homework, congratulations. Uh, A little bit. I appreciate that. Uh, (laughs) Yes, I did a research study a few years ago where I surveyed more than 100 journalists who worked in Jewish media in the US and Canada and I've also done research separately and independently on ethical codes and journalism ethics. And what I found was uh, a little disappointing in that the uh, journalists in the Jewish world were not so educated about media ethics And uh, certainly we're not uh, aware of what you are probably learning or will be learning in journalism school. They come to journalism in the smaller Jewish media from very different uh, backgrounds. So they relied on their own gut instincts for making ethical decisions on difficult stories, whether to pursue or not to pursue a story. And it what came out of it to me was that there needed to be more uh, uh, education and awareness within this particular subgroup of journalists. And separately, and again in parallel, I, I did research into kind of Jewish values and history, and there are many ways in which Jewish values, classical, traditional Jewish values, can inform a journalist and inform the work he or she does um, in an ethical sense,
1: great.
2: Can you talk a little more specifically about what those sort of Jewish ethics do to inform Jewish journalists? Sure. The
0: uh, there's a classic um, comment in the in the in the in the Five Books of Moses and the Torah where it says, um, "Do not be a talebearer among your people." And if you're not a talebearer, you cannot be a journalist. There is a great Jewish thinker of the early nineteenth century who believed that even telling true stories about someone if they could harm their reputation was not something you should do. So if you follow those two strictures very literally, you're, it's almost impossible to be a journalist. And this was long after, in American tradition, the uh, truth became a defense against libel. So if you were to follow the path of, of this, uh, the extreme uh, position um, you would be be very hard-pressed to be a journalist. But one of the great things about uh, Jewish uh, law and, and history and values is that you can find many paths to the same goal, and that includes being an honest broker within your people uh, and ex- exposing, I won't say necessarily is the right word, but dealing with challenging issues. And one of the things I've said recently, and it's only partially a joke, is that... If the book of Genesis were written today by leaders of the Jewish community or the or political world, it would be very brief because every single major player in that book, from Abraham and J- Isaac and Jacob, they come out pretty bad. But these are warts and all stories that are told about these great patriarchs and matriarchs of our tradition. and. If those people were living today, they would put pressure on their local papers not to write the stories that are reported in the most uh, important text of the Jewish tradition.
1: So me and Morgan are both Jewish, and we've both been to Israel before, and we were curious about your transition from the United States to Israel, and why exactly you made that move.
0: Okay, and another good question, a tough question to answer um probably better answered over a beer or two in a pub but since we're sitting um in the studio we'll have to skip that for now <laughs> it was a complicated thing for me uh the way it is for uh, uh most people who move to israel um it's a very interesting background. Let me zoom out for a second for some context. Most of the immigrants to Israel from other countries, and there are more than a hundred countries that have uh, uh, people who have moved to Israel from, came because they had no other choice. Whether it was Russian Jews who were uh, thrown in jail or oppressed for their uh, Jewish uh, tradition, or Jews from um, Arab and North African countries who were uh, pushed out or encouraged to leave um, after the formation of the State of Israel in 1948, the immigration to Israel from the Eng- primarily English-speaking countries—the U.S., the U.K., Australia, South Africa—is kind of separate. Is more voluntary and it's more based on personal uh, goals and ideologies. Because certainly, um, um, American Jews are deeply embedded in the society and are not facing, in spite of some recent blips, as it were, not facing constant political, financial, social, and pressure. Um, in countries that are unfriendly to them. So any American in a sense who moves to Israel does so because he or she has some kind of um, uh, inner drive and, um, that sends them there. And I'm at the same time, I'm also unlike some of that because many of the people I know uh, from America who moved to Israel did so. Like I have a friend who had it written in his wedding, Uh, vows that they would move to Israel at some point when they got married in the United States. So we, my wife and I were not like that. We were very embedded and happy in our community. We live in Albany, New York. But we decided to spend a little time in Israel. um, And we were there initially for six months sabbatical. Um, And at the end of six months, we felt that six months wasn't enough to get a sense of what the country was really like. So I had to resign my job. I couldn't, my sabbatical was only six months. So we threw ourselves into the economy. And I found a a job and then we said well we'll see how it'll be after a year and after a year we said well we, we want one more year and by the end of two years we were really there and we just felt that that was where we needed to be where we wanted to be um there's the parable of the frog in the pot, right? And I don't think it's actually true, but I use it anyway. If you put a frog in a pot of boiling water, he will jump out. If you put a frog in a pot of cold water and slowly turn it on until the water's boiling, you have cooked frog. So I, I don't know if that's really true, but I consider myself a cooked frog.
1: I'm, I'm really curious about that desire to want to see Israel and to want to know more about Israel and wanting to eventually live there. Why, where did that come from to just want to experience Israel for what it is?
0: it came actually from being there um one could have uh dreams and fantasies about israel from afar and i think if we're you know delving into the jewish subject a little bit i would say that for most american jews who have an interest in israel it's it's interesting it's far and it's kind of viewed in some ways as a jewish disneyland alice in wonderland fantasy land where you can see things that you couldn't see. And unfortunately, on the Israeli side, Israelis tend to view Americans as the Mr. Moneybags of Monopoly who are there primarily to spend their money. They don't really want them in a sense there. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but there's an element of truth in that. But to once we were there and met people and saw the good and the bad, the highs and the lows, the ups and the downs, It was a very special place that we felt we could um, have a role in shaping. I mean, it's a small country, right? I said yesterday in my talk, we're up to about 9 million people. And it's 9 million people, but in a sense, everybody feels like they're related. Everybody feels empowered to be your uh, aunt or uncle. Uh, We used to have people stop my wife on the street and insist they put a hat on our baby when he was in a stroller. And then down the street, another person would stop and say, you must take the hat off the baby because they're too hot. So everybody's in everybody else's face, which you can find either annoying or you can find charming. And a sense that everybody is part of one large family. And that, that was obviously something, well, not obviously, that was something that uh, drew, helped draw us into the country.
2: So you were in Israel kind of when news started to switch from the analog to the digital. Can you talk about what it was like to be um, in Israel, in the Middle East, watching sort of the whole media landscape shift as you were involved in it?
0: Yeah, again, that's a very good question. Not only was I there at that shift, I had a small part in it, and it was a time which the news actually heated up significantly. I got to Israel in 1999. That was only a few years after the um, Nobel Peace Prize and the first wave of the Arab Is-Palest- the Israeli-Palestinian peace accords that were, at that point, on track towards uh, some kind of resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And, however, about a year after we got there, that changed. The Second Intifada broke out, and Um, there was a a four, two and a half, three year period of intense violence on a daily basis and this was happening as the media were shifting to digital from analog, that's a very good way to put it. Um, The largest news website now in Israel got launched in 2001. Um, All the newspapers and media in Israel launched news websites and so they were thrown into this at a point when Every single minute of the day, there was some kind of intense breaking news, and I remember those people in Israel who uh, observed the Sabbath and do and cut themselves out of uh, media and certainly online media. They may read a newspaper, but online media and uh, television for a 25-hour period from uh, sundown Friday till uh, sundown on on Saturday. Everybody would turn on um, their uh, TV, radio, or uh, computer right after the Sabbath ended. And the Internet would crash, essentially, almost every Saturday because people wanted to know. They knew in that 25-hour period something had happened. And so the news media had to gear up extremely quickly to a uh, 24-7 news cycle. And I don't even say 24-7. I say a 24-7 second news cycle. Um, and they were forced by... the Uh, the occurrences of what was going on to be on top of the news every minute of the day. And that was uh, uh, trial by fire, as it were. And I think for the most part, the better media in Israel have weathered that well and and continue to uh, be on top of the news. And as I just said a few minutes ago, in fact, faster than most, even other digital media.
1: Great. That's really, really interesting, especially as we're in this new age of media that's currently still evolving. So... That's really, really interesting. Um, My next question for you is if you could just tell us a little bit about the Hartman Institute, where you're now, I think, the the official title is the Director of Internet and Media at the Shalom Hartman Institute. If you could just tell us a little bit about the Institute and what you do there, that would be really helpful. Sure.
0: The Hartman Institute is a uh, think tank and educational center, and we research uh, issues of uh, Jewish pluralism and history and values and teach and run programs throughout Israel and throughout North America. In fact, I just learned yesterday that the Hillel director here at the U of O is going to be joining our a program, a, a one or two year program we run with American Hillel directors. And uh, we are not a political institution. We do not do what in Israel is called Hasbara, which is either uh, roughly translated as PR or explanation or uh, spin. But we uh, try and educate people about um, uh, Jewish values and uh, Jewish tradition without uh, perspective that you must be observant and uh, that is in a way that is um, true, we believe, we hope to the actual Jewish tradition of a conversation being the law. I mean there are many people you may know or whatever you may or may not know about Jewish law. This you can't eat this you cannot do. This light you cannot turn on. This this path you cannot walk And and I think there is Certainly that within the tradition, but there is more importantly at least for us, um, you can find many ways to the path of uh, knowledge and um, uh, Jewish values, and that's what we do. We work with uh, we work with Israelis, we work with Americans, we work with Muslims and Christians, we work with secular and religious men and women young and old. And we have a, a very large footprint in many camps and um, unfortunately, I guess there are very few institutions in Israel that have such a broad footprint with so many diverse populations.
1: I'm also curious about you were before working at the Hartman student, a journalist for over 30 years in the United States, correct? Correct. So what was that transition like from being a journalist in the United States to now almost doing PR for the Hartman Institute and why was that transition? Okay. Oh, good
0: questions. These are tough questions. I loved being a journalist. Uh, journalism was all I ever wanted to do. And if you, again, as I you saw in my lecture yesterday, I was really only half kidding or a quarter kidding when I showed a video of Clark Kent in the original TV series, because that is in fact what got me going, and that's the kind of journalism I always wanted to do. I never wanted to do anything else. So when I uh, did that, I did that in America. I worked in newspapers, and I worked at uh, news institutions, and I, that's all I did, that's all I ever wanted to do. When I moved to Israel, I needed partially to reinvent myself because I was in a new country without any um, contacts or uh, connections, and nobody knew uh, who I was, and certainly my clips from the Albany Times Union didn't really mean much. So I found my first job at uh, a, a news website, a fledgling news website, and learned the internet, internet news from the ground up, kind of on my own, because there really, really was no guide to that. And um, um, the challenge for me was working in a country where the primary language was not my mother tongue, as we say in Israel. And to this day, frankly, I could not do news, certainly at the pace of which news is done in Israel, in Hebrew. Uh, so I was. Limited to niche journalism in English, which primarily was aimed at uh, an overseas audience. So that's not, that closed off a lot of doors for me. Um, at the same time, the uh, global use of English on the internet has opened many doors. And I was able to uh, work in news websites in Israel in English that had a strong audience, although primarily overseas. And that was an, uh, an ex- and extension of my journalism career. Um, I faced issues of values and traditions and ethics that were alien to me, as I tried to get out in my talk yesterday. Israeli media have different values and ethics than American journalism, and I was tested and challenged, and I clashed with people over those kinds of questions. And then the transition out of journalism was very difficult for me. I love journalism to this day and I feel it's where I uh belong and belonged. But the reality of life, I've gotten a little older. You were very you mentioned 30 years and plus many in Israel so it adds up to a lot and I you get it. I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but you can kind of get a sense of that. So I've been doing it for a long time and it was very difficult, especially with the pace at which news happened in Israel and when I was running um, news websites, even though they were in English, we were needed to be on top of the news twenty four seven and as the director of a news website at the largest Hebrew news website in Israel, I was in that game, and it was in Tel Aviv, which is about can be a two hour commute from Jerusalem where I live and it was uh, a very difficult uh, s- to sustain, so I was recruited to join the Hartman Institute when they were building their first online presence. And I went to it with a sense of loss at leaving journalism, but also a sense of opportunity to learn new skills and to bring an important institution to the world in a new fashion. So I, to this day, and maybe it's my own internal fantasy, I don't consider myself a PR person. I consider myself in a sense a translator, not from language to language, but to bring the uh, ideas and values of our uh, academics and our ivory tower to translate our ivory tower to uh, the world of the media through op-eds and shorter articles and interviews and uh, presence in the media and to help uh, the media get a sense of what we do. So I'm not a salesman. I work in our marketing department, but I'm a terrible marketer in that sense. I shouldn't really say that, but I'm not a PR guy. I, I Again, maybe this is my own um, uh, fantasy or my own internal uh, way of uh, dealing with it, but I, I view myself as a creator of interesting content that I think has uh, value and that people would read. So some of what I do, most, a lot of what I do is only on our website. It's not all about PR. Um, I host some live video programs that we put on our website, and I've tried to bring our institute to the modern world, and to help them translate the really heavy-duty, serious, philosophical thinking they do in a way that doesn't dumb it down but is more digestible in, in, the, they, in the media uh, world today.
2: Well, I think that's about all of our time.
0: Thank you very much. If you give me 30 more seconds, I want to say that my time at the University of Oregon was as a graduate student and so I didn't have a full undergraduate experience here. But the values and the ethics and the history and the skills I learned here I truly mean this. I use them every day in my career, and it was a tremendous opportunity, and I'm really glad to be back with you today.
2: Thank you so much for stopping by. Um, I'm Morgan again.
1: I'm Levy Gittleman. Thanks so okay. much.
2: Thank you again.